The 2023 Women's World Cup is well underway in Australia and New Zealand, and Brazil is already two games in to its Group F campaign. A 4-0 thumping of Panama on Monday was followed by a disappointing defeat to France this morning, meaning the final group match against Jamaica will be crucial for the country's qualifying hopes. And, as a special treat for our listeners, today we're releasing a bonus episode of Explaining Brazil, as our intern, Darley Boyt, caught up with the Brazilian national team's head of performance, Evie Casagrande, straight from Brazil's training camp on the Gold Coast. If you like Explaining Brazil, you should subscribe to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We're an independent organisation funded by our subscribers, and you can help us stay independent and continue to produce award-winning journalism. And if you're already a subscriber, you can go the extra mile and join our Buy Me A Coffee fan page. And in return, you'll get exclusive perks like special newsletters and behind-the-scenes content, as well as a shout-out here on our podcast. And today, I'd like to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members. Tom Nolan, Marta Martins, Pan Ludwig, Leslie Seal, Caroline Hubert, Mark Hillary, John Thomas III, Louise Renz, Erwan Menais, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Kars Vrieswick, Alistair Townsend, Peter Abramson, Jim Wofadeju, Michael Fryer, Miller Renacido, David Dixon, Jose Ozi Stankovic, Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftach, Tonika Thompson, Anderson Da Silva, Kat Kramer, Peter Suffren, Anna Lund, and someone who wishes to remain anonymous. And our Buy Me A Coffee members come from all over the world, so please, if we're butchering the pronunciation of your name, do send us an email. And if you too believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on our podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com slash brazilianreport and subscribe to one of the membership levels. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash brazilianreport to learn more. And now, sit back and enjoy our exclusive interview and stay tuned to The Brazilian Report for more World Cup news as we cover Brazil's march through the knockout stages. Women had to walk a long path in Brazil to conquer the most basic right of just practicing the sport. One could argue that they could have benefited from Brazil's long football tradition overall. But in reality, the struggle to achieve even basic conditions for practice, already hard considering legal and systemic delays, was made even harder due to structural gender inequality and sexism. It was only recently that the women's national team has been allowed to use the Brazilian Federation's training center. For years, they could only use it when the men's team was not there. And it was just in 2020 that the Brazilian Football Confederation, or CBF, established equal treatment, payment, and prizes for both the men and the women's squad in the Olympic Games, but not for the World Cup. These achievements came late after a long history of poor conditions and a struggle for recognition. If the conditions for the national team were not ideal, in Brazilian clubs, the situation for women was even worse, meaning that many professional players could not dedicate themselves exclusively to the sport. And to get some insight on that, we spoke with Evie Casagrande, former footballer and current head of performance of the Brazilian women's national team. Would you say that the players today, both in Brazil and mainly in Brazil, but if you have comments on the U.S. too, that'd be great. Um, 
would you say they have more structure and recognition compared to when you started out? Definitely. My first experience in football, like 11 v 11 football, I think there we barely would go to the gym. Um, I think I've been through the gym. I had to go to the gym outside of the club to because there's no struc- like structure or resources available. Um, we didn't have somebody to actually um, with structure and manage the load you know, and the, the training sessions. So then as soon as I get to the club, it's already three o'clock. We train until six. I get home at around 9, 30, 10 p.m. At that point, I'm completely exhausted. There's no way that I could actually focus on the study part of it. And at the time, I wanted to be a doctor. So it was impossible for me to do that um, or even do both. So that's when I found out about uh, America and that I could potentially do both and have a, a degree and actually be able to do um, uh, to play in a competitive environment at the same time as having the degree, which I thought I I always think it's very important because football is not forever and you never know you know it's so unpredictable um, with injuries and stuff like that. So for me, it was very good that I had that degree and that's why I'm here. I think it made it. It made it easier, um, that that kind of uh, transition. So yeah, that was that was the reason that I left Brazil was it was um, because of that. And I think today we have we have like a holistic uh, view of performance where we have doctors, we have physios, we have psychologists. Back then, I mean, I had problems with my confidence as a player and. You just had to deal with it because you you, you might not have the, the resources to, to deal with it back in the day. So I think today we have more and more staff to to be able to see the whole picture of the athlete and make sure we literally have everything that the athlete needs, nutrition, uh, psychology, and even female health now. It, you know, I... As a player, had no idea the impact of the menstrual cycle and the performance, or even on things like what to eat and what not to eat. Things that now, because I study and it, it's it's better now because we have staff that can educate and empower those uh, those girls. But back then, it was very hard to to not only have those people around us, um, but also have that management of load where. You know, we're not playing 11 v 11 every day because otherwise you're going to kill your players or, you know, or you're just running laps um, instead of actually playing football and, and making sure you're fit using football. So definitely a lot, a lot have changed. Um, I think it's there's still a long way to go, um, but I think we're definitely on the right path. I think um, there is more. You know, especially in in the big clubs, there's uh, big medical departments, there's more staff, there's more more resources. I think it's an education. I think that's the biggest part is uh, having people that are able to, that have the degree to educate the players so the players can can do the work for themselves too. Because I think we cannot just rely on the on the professionals to to guide you, I think it's our job as professional professionals on, in the field to to really make sure we empower the players. And I think that's something that we didn't I didn't have 
as a player and I wish I had. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be a, a high performance coach because I wanted to make sure I would empower my players the way that I was not empowered. Um, I didn't know anything about nutrition and, you know, I didn't know about how to take care of my body. I didn't know how to, to have, you know, just a kind of conscious of my own body. It, that, and it's so important, just like self-regulation, self-understanding of what you need as a player. Um, and I think now they have that, that, Like, especially in the big clubs, they have that in their on their side. And I think it's up to them to use that in their favor uh, and extract the best out of them. But of course, there's there's still a long way to go. The practice of football by women was banned in Brazil in 1941. Some matches were organized until the early 1940s. But instead of attracting fans, they sparked outrage, mostly from men. Following the buzz, then-president Getulio Vargas issued a decree that was supposed to protect women from the violence of the sport, which could harm their motherly nature. The decree was not revoked until 1979, and it was only in 1983 that women's football became legal again. Meanwhile, in the United States, a 1972 bill called Title IX made gender equality mandatory in education, including collegiate athletics. By no coincidence, football, or soccer, became hugely popular among women in the United States. And 51 years later, the U.S. national team is the most successful women's football national squad, with four World Cup titles and four Olympic gold medals. And I'm wondering, too, building off of that a little bit, what you see as the difference in the this is just diving into that a little deeper but what you see in the difference in the physical and technical preparation of athletes today and when you started training mm -hmm. so in terms of you didn't have role models but also if we're looking at what that looked like on the ground mm -hmm. I think the, there's still I think there's still a lot to be done in that aspect I think there's um a lot of environments there is very isolated, like the physical side and the the technical side. It's getting better. But I think as performance coaches, I think we have to walk hand in hand with the technical staff because we need to know what they're going to do in training, what's the, the plan, um, so then we can really be way more effective. I think gone were the days where we were just – asking players to just run laps and just, you know, do their fitness uh, training just by running. I think nowadays we can really be more effective by using the ball. And to be able to do that, it has to be a, a connection between you and the technical staff. Um, because if I know what they're going to do in training, I can really go to them and say, okay, in this drill, can we push the intensity by increasing the number of sets and reps, making sure they have the, the appropriate rest. So then they're going high intensity every every rep and they're just not going fatigue, fatigue, fatigue. And then they're just going, slowing down and not actually getting the technical side. So I think, I think one doesn't exist without the other. Um, and I think as, as when there is a, a very 
high relationship and very um, big relationship between the two. That's when the things flow a little bit better. That's where our physical side is is improved more and their technical side is improved more because that's what you want. You want them to be able to play. Um, and at, at the end of the day is how you play the game. Um, so what I do is to facilitate that for, for them. So um, it's when we think that the fitness side of things should be the, the priority. That's when things go wrong. And I think it's the other way around. I think we help them to, to perform at their highest level um, in, in the game. Marta's generation grew up in a time when they could play football, but still faced many challenges to make a career out of it. When they made it to the national team, bringing visibility and support to Brazilian women's football was also a goal. Since the 2000s, they've led the Brazilian national team to success in various women's competitions. It started with winning the 2003 Pan American Games, which presented Marta to the world, then a second place in the 2007 World Cup, and the silver medals won in the 2004 and 2008 Olympic Games. It is not a coincidence that after all the efforts that Marta's generation put into developing the sport, the conditions are slowly getting better. And I'm curious, too, how you see the difference between investment in men's and women's football in the national teams and in the clubs, too. I think from a national team perspective, I think we, we, we're really lucky. I think we have, like for this World Cup, we have all the resources that we need. I mean, this preparation we have. We're, I was talking with our administration and logistic department because they, they did an amazing job in putting us in the best place in the Gold Coast with the best facility. Um, we had everything that we needed. We had all the equipment that we needed. Um, so that that makes a, a huge difference for us in our preparation. And I think um, in, in the club, at the club level, I think there's still a long way to go. There's some clubs that do um, offer that investment um, and some clubs that are still on the, the way to do that. Um, but I think when we, the more that we have leaders in the, the right positions to push that um, the women's game for the right reasons, I think that's when the game is going to continue to evolve and evolve um, very well. And like I said, I think the with the World Cup now and how the media is helping us with, you know, uh, making sure they, they show our trajectory, they show the that the players there they have a history they have a story behind what they do there's just not a uh, a face in the, on the TV they actually have fought a lot to be where they are um, and you know when you see players like Marta that that Formiga all those big players that helped shape that for for the generation now and it's it's very cool to see that the younger generation they are very appreciative of that and they are pushing it. Um, they're doing their part and working very hard and being very disciplined and very determined. And that's, I think the more that that happens, the more um, the investment is going to come. So so the idea is to, to keep pushing. Um, but yeah, we're very lucky here to to have everything we needed and the, and the preparation that we needed. And it makes our jobs so much easier. In the 70s, Brazil was already the land of football we know today. 
Pelé was already considered the best player in history. Brazil had already won three World Cups, and the national team's yellow shirt was already widely celebrated as a synonym of the beautiful game. Throughout the 20th century, football became a reason of pride for all Brazilians. And with the sport's professionalization in the beginning of the 1930s, football also became a path out of poverty for many young people, but not for girls. 44 years passed between the creation of Brazilian men's national team and its first World Cup championship. And another 28 years went by between the country's first title in the sport and the women's national team's first match in 1986, the same year Marta was born. And I'm wondering, too, we're trying to explain to people outside of Brazil why the Brazilian women's team has not won a World Cup yet, apart from the men's team having several titles. And I'm wondering how you would explain that to them. I think the investment um, is a big part. I think um, being able for youth players to be able to um, have the opportunity to showcase their, their talent and have the conditions and the, the clubs at the youth level to be um, to have the training that they need to develop as football players. And I think that's where all the, um, when we talk about injuries and they all say, oh, the injuries is because females are more prone to injuries. I think we need to shift that mindset. And I think that's where, you know, the, we need to make sure we develop young female players the right way. We need to make sure that we teach them the right movement. We need to have the, the right resources, the right coaches, the right people um, to help them succeed. And I think, like I said, I think the more investment is going gonna, is gonna to help that. And I think the more uh, personnel and staff that they put in clubs um, to grow the game in the beginning, like under nine, under 10, under 11, um, get that, you know, we talk about places like America where they, they start young and they, they have those academies. And I think Brazil is growing a lot on that. And I think people are not seeing it yet, but there's a lot of good work being done in the country for a lot, a lot of good professionals, a lot of good coaches there in clubs. They are passionate about the game. But like I said, it's it's it, we have to trust the process. I think it, people sometimes they think it's going to come very quickly. And when you think about culturally, uh, places like America, they've done for so long, and that's what that's you know that 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 helped them. Um, but I don't think I think we can't forget that we are um, doing a lot in that, and there's a lot of things being done, but. People need to trust the process, and I think it, it, it's a it's a, a marathon, not a sprint, as they say. So, I think in the next few years we're gonna we're seeing it already, but we're gonna see it more and more. Um, how we're gonna have more talent? That they're gonna have more players that are gonna be ready for the game, and they're gonna be prepared to play at the highest level. For sure, and I'm wondering, expanding on that point about the difference between. Brazil and U.S. with women's soccer, because you worked in the U.S. for some time. And I'm curious what difference you see in women's soccer between the U.S. and Brazil, if you could expand on that a little mm -hmm. bit more. 
Yeah, I think the the big advantage of America is that they have that um, that investment and the university level um, game. So we have players that have been through the education and through the the college journey, and they have had coaching in strength conditioning. So f- physically, they are able to really um, be. It's, it's more of an advantage, advantage for them just because they've been through that system. And I think the high school system in America is completely different than in Brazil, right? So I think in Brazil, I played futsal for 10 years. Um, the schools, they don't have the high school-like system where you have huge 11v11 football pitches for players to, to play. Um, so I just found out football as 11v11 football when I was 16. And that was actually my first tryout for the under-17 national team. And um, it was almost like, I'm just going to try this out. I never actually, I I actually bought the soccer cleats on my way to the tryout um, because I I just played futsal. And my uncle said, you know, there is this trial, this trial and you should just try out, you know. And I ended up going to the end and, and then I realized that I, my place was in a football field, 11 v 11. Um, and and um, so that for me was a switch, but it was not only until I was 16. Can you imagine that? Until I was 16, 15, I was actually with my um, playing on a football pitch for the first time. So then imagine how many girls been through the same path where, you know, you have, you don't have that kind of system where it allows you to, to do that but now like I said it's getting better and better and better but the US I think culturally have a, have a strong foundation on high school in high schools and college when when players get out of college go to the NWSL physically they are way above because no fault fault on the Brazilians but it's 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 how they they grew up and the resources that they had um, so I think and that's why I'm Posing that question, question is because when we do have the investment, can you imagine how good it's going to be, and and how you know now that the 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 clubs and the players can go to under fifteen, can go to under ten in clubs and actually co- be coached um, quality of movement and fitness and and all those things. I think the future is quite bright um, for Brazil, and I think uh, it's as already have started. Um, but it's, I think it's just going to go up from now and hopefully more investment is going to come in the big clubs. So we continue that, um, that trend. Marta, crowned six times the world's best football player by FIFA, is about to play her last Women's World Cup, which means it's the 37-year-old athlete's last shot at helping Brazil get its first title. How are you feeling about Marta's last season and what are you expecting from this last participation on the World Cup? Marta is, um, I have a huge admiration from, for her because I've, I've coached her in Orlando Pride um, in 2018, 19, I think. And um, I mean, I grew up watching her play and she was, you know, Marta. And I think her her passion for the game and her dedication and her the energy that she brings, no matter what, I think is con- extremely contagious. And it's it's very exciting that 
we get to see that um, for this World Cup. And I think no matter what happens, I think she's she's gonna bring her her energy and her passion and her skills and whatever she brings, it's 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 very special. So I think the world needs to see that uh, one more time. And it's very cool to, for us to, to be able to see it firsthand here. For me, firsthand in the national team. Um, and um, I think that, yeah, it's very exciting for her and for everyone that, that get to experience that. Whether Brazil wins the World Cup or not, Marta's achievements are solid, both on and off the pitch. I think, like I said, I think there's still a lot to to be done, especially in specific um, places in the world. But I think we're we're on the right path, um, especially with women's fo- football. And I think the World Cup will help showcase that and help grow the game even more. I think this World Cup is gonna be a big is gonna play a big part on that. So there's more recognition. There's not more media. Uh, if you can see it, you can be it. I always say that. So not only for the players, but also for people that want to do the jobs that we do, uh, females that want to do the jobs that we do, and they don't see as many women uh, coaches out there. And if they see it in, on TV, they're like, okay, I can be that person. So I think it's all about empowerment and, and educating. Pelé's father was already a football player who gave the king lessons from early on. Afterwards, Pelé became a role model for millions of Brazilians. Marta didn't have someone to look up to like that, but that's now one less problem for future generations. If you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a second and it will help us reach a wider audience. Or, better yet, subscribe to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your memberships fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. And thanks to our subscribers, we've been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively and our work has won and been shortlisted for several international journalism awards. More recently, our newsletters won the best newsletter prize in the Americas from the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers for a small or local newsroom. And in order to keep doing that work, we need your support. So go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. I'm Ewan Marshall and thanks for listening and Explaining Brazil will be back next week.